I want to go back uh, together with you to that first century uh, scene where the shepherds encounter uh, these angels. Uh, a placid scene to begin with, and then all of a sudden this cacophonous interruption. And if I could go back only to one or the other, rather than going back to the moment when the angels appear, I would choose to go back to when the angels leave. You know, I I mean, because while they're there, I don't know how long it lasts. Uh, It takes about half a minute to read. Could have been 45 minutes in time, but I'm pretty sure of this one thing, and that's that during that full period, not a single shepherd moved, right? They've just been ambushed by they know not what. Time and space has ruptured. Uh, heavenly voices have been coming at them. It's like being in a lightning storm, except the flash just stays on. And, and, and there's a chorus of heaven that's singing. And then all of a sudden, zoop, it's gone. And this is what I would want to see. As their eyes start to readjust back just to the embers of this one little fire. In the distance, a sheep passes gas. There's a sound of a pebble dropping from one of the shepherd's beards back to the ground where he had just been lying. The guy, the old man had been telling this story before the shepherds showed up. All he can do is hold himself and keep rocking back and forth saying, it's been a quiet week in Lake Wobegon. It's been a quiet week in Lake Wobegon. And all they want to know is, what the heck was that? And the answer kind of comes slowly. As they roll back the tape, what did we hear? What did we see? But as the answer comes, I think they begin to realize That although the music is gone, that although the angels are gone, that although it's just them again alone in the dark, they have been given something that no one will ever be able to take away from them. And that is good news. And because of that good news, they have joy. Now, I, I don't know what joy looks like on the desert-hardened faces of shepherds. But I think if, if we could watch them process this, we would begin to see, I don't know, a smile. Maybe feet starting to dance. Maybe an embrace. Maybe clapping hands. Maybe on the cheek of one of the older men, a tear. They now have joy because of good news. This is just as the angel said. I bring to you good news of great joy. What is it about this good news that will follow these men for the rest of their lives? What is it about this good news that will ignite joy in them? Well, three things tonight that I'd like to reflect on with you. First of all, the nature of good news. Secondly, the promise of good news. And then finally, the wonder. The nature of good news. There's something about this expression, good news, that I think we may miss 
in the 21st century. Good news in Greek is a compound word, good plus message. It's put together. And it's really an expression that comes out of, I think we'd say, the news media. Uh, journalism. Back before people had television sets or Internet or newspapers or radios to get their news, how'd they get their news? How'd they find out what was happening in the world beyond themselves? There was heralds, right? Some little guy comes running up. It's got a message. And you can put yourself in the place of somebody who lives in a little village or city and word has come that there is an, uh, an enemy marching against us with an army and the king has mustered the forces and taken the field and they've gone out to engage in combat to protect the city. But while they're gone, you sure do get curious, don't you? What's happening out there? Who's got the upper hand? And if it goes well for your king, then he's going to dispatch a herald with good news. And the herald will come running or riding back into the city and will say, good news. The king has won. The battle is over. And we're victorious. Now, that's, that's, that's good news. We so often lack joy in life. Because we think what God has for us is not good news, but good advice. Everybody's got good advice. God seems to as well, right? You ask anybody tomorrow, what do you think is the heart of Christianity? They say, I don't know, um, being a really good person, the Ten Commandments, the Golden Rule, you do this, do this, do that. And all of those things are good things to do. But none of those things is the heart of Christianity. None of those things is the substance of the Bible. God is all about good news. Not good advice. One minister distinguishes between good news and good advice this way. News is about something that has already happened. Since it's already happened and you just found out about it, it's something that uh, you had no responsibility for. You didn't do anything. Someone else did it on your behalf. Like a king who won a battle. Advice, on the other hand turns us into the future. It says, you've got to do this or else. See, the king in the battlefield would um, send a herald if he were victorious. But if he weren't, he's not going to send a herald. He's not going to send good news. He's going to send back his military advisors. Word is going to come back saying, you know, you arm this wall, you get out of this place, you run in that direction and you defend yourself here. That's counsel. That's advice. And um, he would say, good luck. We're all counting on you. Right. Don't blow it. Well, the angels don't, don't come with any advice. There's no counsel. <laughs> For these shepherds, there's a simple proclamation of good news, of great joy. Someone has done something for you that makes all the difference in the world. And because of that, there's joy. If they had announced good advice, the shepherds would have gone home with anxiety and worry and fear and uh. I hope we have a better Christmas next year. <laughs> Christianity is not good advice from its very beginning to the very end of the story of the Bible. 
It's all about God's desperate attempt to communicate good news to us. On the lips of Isaiah, as we've been studying over the last four Sundays of Advent, it's glad tidings, O Zion. Lift up your voices and announce good news. The four biographies of Jesus that we get in the Bible all become called Gospels, which is another word for the same thing, good news. Because Jesus is all about good news. To know him is to know the wonders of what God has done for us in him. Of course, the angel is pronouncing good news in us tonight. We're here precisely for the same reason. To celebrate, to share with one another the good news of God in Jesus Christ. That's just the nature of good news. And we want to keep it straight if we want to have joy. The second thing is the promise of good news. We oftentimes miss as we read this account of the shepherds and the angel of the Lord, the nuance that I think would have been very plain to these shepherds. There is in the way that the angel articulates the good news, a hint of political satire. I mean, the imagery here is thoroughly Jewish, and yet the angel chooses to use words that had common currency in the Roman Empire. They were part of the propaganda machinery of the emperor. And you would have recognized it right away. I'm sure that the uh, shepherds did. We dare not condescend to the shepherds. They know under whose authority they toil day after day. Let me give you an example of this kind of propaganda. The emperor at the, at the time of this uh, announcement is Augustus. We read that in the very first verse of chapter 2. Augustus is the guy who orders this census that's been taken. Augustus is the first emperor of the Roman Empire, a great uh, grandnephew of Julius Caesar. You remember that on the Ides of March, Julius Caesar is stabbed to death on the floor of the Roman Senate. Julius Caesar had begun to consolidate power in ancient Rome so that the Republic was becoming more of a dictatorship. And it didn't go well for him. Upon his demise, uh, all the federated powers represented by these senators and others kind of come unglued. And for the next two decades, there's a period of anarchy and civil war and lawlessness throughout all the regions over which Rome had governed. Chaos and death. But now in the year 27 BC, Augustus, at the time named Octavian, has consolidated power through great battles, and the Senate recognizes him now as the emperor of the Roman Empire. And they commemorate what's called the Pax Augustus, the Peace of Augustus, uh, by honoring his birth. So we find, for example, in Asia Minor, an inscription. It's a calendar inscription that wants to change the, the, the Roman civil calendar to correspond to begin with the birthday of Augustus. And here's what we read. See if you notice any familiar uh, words here. It is a day, that is the, the birth of Augustus, that we may justly count as the beginning of everything. 
Inasmuch as it has been restored, uh, it has restored the shape of everything that was failing and turning into misfortune and has given a new look to the universe at a time when it would gladly have welcomed destruction if Caesar, that's Augustus, had not been born to be the common blessing of all men. Since providence, by giving us Augustus, sending him as a savior, that he might end war and arrange all things. And since the birthday of the God Augustus was the beginning of the good news for the world. That is kind of a familiar ring to it, doesn't it? And so when this angel of the Lord comes and uses some of the same language to describe the birth of another king, it's as though the angel is ripping press clippings out of the Roman uh, propagandist uh, machinery to say, you think you know a king who brings peace? You think you know a king who ends war? You think you know a king who's come to inaugurate a whole new era? You think you know a savior? I tell you, this day, there is born to you a Savior, the Messiah, the Lord, He's the Son of God. He's the King of heaven and of earth. And oh, by the way, shepherds, you're not reading an inscription. You're having a conversation with an angel. It's the promise of good news. The shepherds seem to get it. There's joy in the shepherds' hearts because they, they seem to understand that what Jesus is coming to do is not just make their lives individually, privately meaningful. Not just to give them a personal hope of individual salvation so that though they take their knocks on this planet, someday they'll have a hope in the hereafter. And all of that's true. <laughs> but they know that there is literally an invasion of heaven with the birth of this child. And that this birth marks the new beginning of global peace, a new era, a new people who have yearned for justice and peace and compassion and beauty, who are going to be formed, called into existence by this king. who are going to live lives that are marked by peace and joy. It's the promise of good news. It's a revolution. The third thing to note about good news is its wonder. The wonder. The wonder of good news. I find it strange that these, uh, this angel feels the need to give the shepherds a sign. Um, we read here in verse 12, this will be a sign for you. You will find a child wrapped in bands of cloth and lying in a manger. And I think, really? Do you really need a sign? Hearing loss is not enough after the, very, the, the choruses of heaven and blast, you know, being blinded is not enough. You've been talking with an angel. You need a sign? I mean, how do you fact check an angel? 
So, yeah, so that's, that's good. Thanks. We, we'd love to have a sign because we really haven't had a chance to run the background check on you yet. Um, so, you know, these shepherds are Presbyterians. Well, maybe, maybe these shepherds don't actually need a sign. But maybe the angel understands that there will be people who will read the story millennia later. People who never do see an angel. And yet people who need to see a sign. And so here's the sign. It's a baby in a manger. Now, you don't see that every day. I had to look at what manger was, by the way. Um, not this year, but in seminary. <laughs> but a dictionary will tell you it's a feed trough. I thought it was a house or something. It's, a, it's, just, a, it's just a place where you, you spill the food for your sheep. Here's the sign is that the king of heaven and earth will be found lying in a feed trough. That the son of God loves us so much. That the son of God loves us in this particular way. To be laid as a baby in a feed trough. To enter into the world of nameless shepherds. To enter into the poverty of means, perhaps of spirit, that these shepherds represent. To enter into one of their everyday work tools. Why? Well, if the shepherds can't conjure a reason at this moment, they will. See, I got, I got to believe that there's no accident that these shepherds with their flocks have moved into the environs of Jerusalem. And I can only think that they've come in this close to the neighborhoods of Jerusalem because this is a season when their business is particularly profitable. Because it's in this season that the temple worship is at its peak. And the shepherds understand that there's money to be made, one sheep at a time, as people buy these sheep to take them into the temple to be sacrificed. And they know what the symbolism of that means. They understand. They don't see these sheep coming back. The sign is of a child who lies now in one of their mangers, not to save a sheep from slaughter, but to save a shepherd. And perhaps within their mind, they begin to hear the refrain of the 8th century B.C. prophet Isaiah, who looked into the future under the guidance of the Holy Spirit, who couldn't quite see what he was looking at, but had enough perspective to be able to give some description to it. And Isaiah would write, Surely he has borne our infirmities and carried our diseases. Yet we accounted him stricken, struck down by God, and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions, crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the punishment that made us whole. 
And by his bruises, we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have all turned to our own way. But the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. It's the wonder. Here's how God reveals his glory. It's in the birth of our Savior. We see the greatest of glory hidden in the greatest of humility. God, come for you and for me. Mild he lays his glory by. Born that we no more may die. Born to raise us from the earth. Born to give us second birth. This is the wonder of good news. That God in love has come to take on our humanity. Broken as it is in us that he might give us his life in all of its fullness. Jesus says, I have come that my joy might be in you. And so he has. He's come to forgive us, to heal us, to renew us. And if we can take that home with us tonight, joy will follow. Let's pray. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we've come tonight to bow our hearts before you in wonder. The story may be familiar. The story may be new. It does not matter. All that matters is that we hear and understand your good news tonight. Open our eyes, open our ears, open our minds, open our hearts. Thank you for the incredible generosity of your love towards us. It's out of that generosity that we join our hearts and minds and lives together to be that community you're calling into existence, a people of peace in the world. So commission us towards that end. And we, we even ask that as we give these tithes and offerings, they go to be tangible signs, to witness to your good news in the world. Ninety countries around the world. We thank you for the privilege of participating in your revolution. And we pray tonight that uh, these gifts would go with our blessing, but more importantly with yours, in the power of your Holy Spirit, for the glory of your Son, our Savior Jesus Christ. Amen.